0: As they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, He was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And they followed him, a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren, the wombs that never bore, the breasts that never nursed. And they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us. And to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things, when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away and put to death, to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that's called the skull, they crucified him and the criminals. One on his right and one on his left. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed, justly, we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. And this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that were assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance and watched these things. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and a righteous man who had not consented to their dissension and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed saw the tomb and how his body was laid, and they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandments.
1: The cross of Jesus Christ. To sing these wonderful truths, to hear that text read, now to preach on it. It feels like, from a human perspective, that it's a failure because even if I had the tongue of an angel, I could not speak of these things as I ought to, but only by his power. Now, in the United States, there has been primarily five methods used for capital punishment to administer the death penalty. The most common two that are used today are lethal injection and electrocution. Lethal injection is by far the most sanitized version of capital punishment. As you run down the line into earlier times, it gets a little more gruesome. Lethal gas was used, the firing squad was a method, and before that, the primary methods, method was hanging, state-sponsored hanging of criminals, which hasn't been done in the United States since 1996. Now, in ancient times, in less civilized societies, the methods go from bad to worse, from beheading people to burning them alive. The Jewish people in Jesus' day, they would stone people to death. They'd throw them into a large pit and drop stones on them, killing them. But just about universally agreed upon, the most cruel form of capital punishment was invented by the Persians around 800 BC. This method, this method was eventually adopted and perfected by the Romans, and it's the method known as crucifixion. Now, we all have some kind of imagery in our head of what crucifixion somewhat looked like, whether by pictures, by books, uh, movies that we've seen, It was the most painful, most cruel way to die. In the Roman context, it was only used for those guilty of the worst crimes, slaves. No Roman citizen would ever experience being crucified, except if they committed a high crime against the state, against Caesar. Crucifixion was done openly, and it was done publicly. It was state-sponsored, When someone was crucified, it was meant to say, don't do what this man did. Look at this. Don't even think about doing what this man did. If you do do what this man did, what you see being done will be done to you. Crucifixion was a somewhat common occurrence History says when Spartacus fell in 71 BC, around 6,000 men were crucified along a stretch of highway that went about 120 miles. So if you can imagine hopping in the car and driving, not quite to Rochester, Minnesota, but pretty, pretty close to that far, and as you're driving down uh, almost the whole way, there'd be scattered along men on crosses, bleeding, screaming for help, sometimes for days In Jesus' era, there was an estimated to be around 30,000 crucifixions, but there's not anybody in here who knows any of their names, but we all know the name of Jesus. In St. Cloud, you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody who doesn't know that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. So why is Jesus singled out then? What makes his death on the cross different from all the tens of thousands who have been crucified as the old hymn, Old Rugged Cross, reminds us, the cross being the symbol of Christianity is the emblem of suffering and, suffering and shame. And with that being said, let's, let, let's read our text together this morning. It comes from 2 Corinthians 5.21. Would you join me as we read? He made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let's pray. Father, to remember such things, to contemplate the Son of God on the cross, on our behalf, to provide for us salvation. We know it's not good enough just to say Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But what does that mean? You would reveal that to us in a deeper way this evening. You would reveal it to us in a more profound way about what happened. And we ask this in Jesus' name. So first we have with our text, He. That is God the Father. Today, Good Friday, it's not about you. It's about God. God is at the forefront God is at the beginning, God is at the end, God is the preeminent one, God is the initiator of our salvation. See, every other religion takes man and puts him at the center. Man is at the forefront, man is at the beginning, man is the author and the initiator of his salvation. Every other religion besides Christianity is all about you and what you do to be made right with God. And we need to keep this in mind because as Christians, how often when we share our testimony or, or, or when we hear someone's testimony, it's all about, you know, I, I did this and I did that and now I'm starting to do this instead and I stopped doing that. Or, you know, I, I wasn't happy and now I have come to Jesus and now I am happy now. And you should come to Jesus too so then you can be happy. But our text today, one of the reasons I picked it, it starts with God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. You see, on the cross, God the Father made Jesus, who he himself knew nothing of sin to be sin on our behalf. Christ was the spotless Lamb of God. He was unblemished, as Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Christ was without sin. Think about this. There has never been a moment in your life that you've ever loved the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. There hasn't been a moment that you've done that perfectly. And in Christ's life, there was never a moment. He didn't. Love God the Father with all of his being. Christ knew nothing of sin. We, as fallen creatures, we know nothing but sin. Genesis 6 5, pretty early on into the creation account, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You see, we don't just sin every now and then. You know, we say stuff like, hey, well, especially in evangelism, we'll go, well, you know, nobody's perfect. That's almost implying that, you know, we're pretty good, we're almost perfect, but nobody's actually really perfect. No, you see, we don't just fall into sin every now and then by accident. The human heart, apart from the regeneration of the Holy Spirit... Is bent on sin. It is like a racehorse running into sin, loving sin. And we're quick to point out sin in other people. Sinners are really quick to point out other people's sin, but not their own sin. How fast right now is our culture into pointing at sin that's out there? That's not right for those people. Let's jump on the bandwagon that sin over there, that that institutional sin, but we have to look at our own hearts. We love to blame others that we are victims, that we had a bad childhood, that mom and dad weren't around, that I wasn't put in the right position or I hung around the wrong crowd. But your sin is not to be blamed on any of those things. And we are guilty. It is personal, individual sin in our own hearts. But Christ was sinless. But we are sinful. Christ was pure, but we are stained. Christ is moral perfection, but we are totally depraved. Christ is righteous, and we are unrighteous. And Christ was made to be sin on our behalf. How was Christ, the Son of God, made to be sin on our behalf? When Jesus went to that cross on Good Friday, he was made to be sin. Does that mean that Christ became a sinner in his nature? No. Does that mean that somehow Christ became defiled in some way? No. So what does it mean when this passage says that Christ was made to be sin? You see, we serve a God of justice. Isaiah 61.8 says, For I, the Lord, love justice. Isaiah 30.18, For the Lord is a God of justice. And us being made in the image and likeness of God have this innate sense deep down inside of us that has a longing for justice. When we hear or read of some horrendous news that happens, some evil that takes place, there is a righteous anger that swells up inside of us and makes your skin crawl. And you think, how can that happen? How can such evil take place? Where is the justice when you hear about one of these mass shootings that happen? Is not your reaction. This person needs to pay. This person needs to be held accountable. And that is us being sinful creatures ourselves, judging another sinful creature. Every one of us here has a wrath inside of you that burns hot when you see an atrocity happening, when you see sin happening. When you hear of a heinous crime being committed, or when you read back into history about the Holocaust, your wrath and your anger burn against that evil. Now think of this. How much greater is God's wrath and anger, Him being perfectly moral, perfectly pure, without sin? How much more does God's wrath and anger against that sin burn than even yours do. If you, being a sinful, broken, fallen person, can get so angry over sin that you see, although you are sinful yourself, how much more a God who is spotless and without blemish? How much more does God's anger and wrath burn against sin? His very nature demands it. And Christ was made to be sin on our behalf. It means that on the cross, all the sins of God's people were put upon Christ. And God the Father poured out His wrath and judgment upon Christ on our behalf. Christ being made to be sin on our behalf means that Christ stood in our place and took the wrath of God for us. That instead of you, that instead of you paying for your own sins in hell, Forever, Christ was made to be sin for us, and He experienced hell upon that cross in our place. Isaiah 53, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But He was pierced through For our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Not his, but ours. On the cross, God the Father treated Jesus as if he committed Every sin ever committed by everybody who would come to believe in him, his elect, but in fact he committed none of them. God imputed our sins to Christ, although he committed none of them. And Christ was treated as we ought to be treated under the judgment bar of God. God is holy, we are not. That's what all the tracts say. God's holy, we are not. And There's this great division between us. God cannot be in the presence of sin. Us being sinners, in order for us to be in God's presence, that sin needs to be dealt with. The wages of sin is death. Someone had to die. Someone had to bear a sin. Someone had to become a curse. Someone had to become like that scapegoat. In Leviticus 16, when Aaron the high priest would come out, he would lay his hands, both of his hands, on the head of the goat, confessing all the sins and iniquities of God's people, symbolically transferring all the sins of God's people onto the goat. The goat would be led outside of the holy city, led outside of the gates to wander and die. That pointed to Christ, that this time all of our sins, all the sins of God's people were not just symbolically transferred to a goat, but they were fully and effectually transferred to Christ. And he was led outside of the gates, led outside of the holy city, bearing the sins of all God's people, and he died on our behalf. That's what it means for Christ to be made sin on our behalf, that God the Father unloaded, His white, hot, holy hatred against sin and sinner upon the head of His beloved Son on our behalf. That our sins were given to Christ. And if you were in Christ, the full force of God's wrath was unleashed upon Jesus Christ in your place. He drank the bitter cup reserved for you. And remember, there is not one drop left for you to drink. You do not have to hold on to your past sins. If you are holding on to your past sins that you have committed or past sins that have been committed against you, you hang on to them so you can continually remind yourself, continually bring them up to punish yourself. And you need to know today, you need to let them go. Because what you're saying is the cross wasn't good enough for your standards. So you need to continually punish yourself. Today you really need to let go of your former sins. You are a new creature in Christ. He drank the cup of wrath for you and you don't have to drink any of it. You you don't have to vouch yourself and volunteer yourself to drink some punishment. You know what? That was good enough for God's standards, but I need to hold on to Him and punish myself. No. In Christ your sins are forgiven. In Christ your sins are gone. And in Christ you are a new creature. And you need to live like it. Christ hung on that cross naked and in a shameful way So you don't have to feel shame for any of the sins you've ever committed. That's the good news. That is the good news. And can we not sing in our hearts, is it well with my soul? Can you sing in your heart, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole. The whole was nailed to that cross, and I bear it no more. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Good Friday, Christ dying for us, being made to be sin on our behalf. Our sins being imputed to Christ and being dealt with. Now the second part of the verse, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Of God in Him. How do we become the righteousness of God in Him? What does that mean? What does it mean that we become the righteousness of God in Him? That's the other side of imputation. Not only did Jesus die for you, but Jesus also lived for you. Jesus Christ lived a perfectly righteous life never sinning, and when you put your faith in Him, that perfectly righteous life gets credited to you, gets gifted to you, gets imputed to you. That perfectly righteous life gets put into your spiritual bank account. Do you ever wonder why Jesus lived 30 plus years on this earth? And there's almost no account of it in the Bible. I find that interesting. Besides when He got separated from His parents in Luke 2, and they found him in the temple. Almost 30 years of silence. God on the earth. Couldn't Jesus just have come down on Friday from heaven? Be crucified on Friday? Rise from the dead Sunday? He could have wrapped the whole thing up in three days. But why did Jesus come as a baby and live the human life for 30 plus years? I believe this is answered in Matthew 3 when When Jesus comes to John the Baptist to get baptized, and you know the story, John basically says, who am I to baptize you, Jesus? You should be the one baptizing me. And Christ says, no, we must do this. Why must we do this? We must do this to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus lived those 33 perfectly righteous years to fulfill all righteousness. And for those who put their faith in Christ, those perfectly righteous years get given to you as a gift, get imputed to you. That's what it means for us to become the righteousness of God in Him. That we don't have a righteousness in our flesh. We don't have a righteousness of our own. Paul in Philippians, when he's listing off why if anybody has confidence in the flesh, it was Paul. If anybody had confidence in to be made right before God. It was Paul. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was from the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee. But when Paul came to Christ, he counted it all as loss. He says in Philippians 3, nine, and being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. We get to heaven only by having no sins and being perfectly righteous. That is a true statement. We get to heaven only by having no sins and being perfectly righteous. Is there anyone in here? that has no sins and is perfectly righteous? No. But in Christ, in Christ, He takes away all of our sins, takes away all of our sins, then on top of that, He gives us His perfectly righteous life too. So not only do we start off with a negative balance in our spiritual bank account because of sin, Christ comes, pays our debt, Brings us back to even, that debt has been paid, your sins are gone, but then on top of that, He gives us His righteous life and puts us on the plus side. It is all a work of God. We can't add anything to it. It is not of the flesh. It is through faith. When, when, When a sinner brings his good deeds before the Lord... It is like filthy rags to be justified. It, 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 it's akin to if a man goes to a house, murders everybody in the house, he runs out of the house, gets caught by the police. The police ask him, did you murder the family? Yes, I did, but when I was crossing the road, I didn't jaywalk. Oh, well, that's okay, you're free then. No, that's what our righteous deeds look like to the Father. That's what a sinner's righteous deeds look like. Puny. It's all a work of God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we become the righteousness of God in him. We exchange our sins for Jesus' righteousness. It was a great exchange, as Martin Luther put it. That's what happened on the cross. My question for you is, have you believed this great exchange for your salvation? Because God will deal with every sin ever committed. And the question we need to ask ourselves and the question we need to ask others as we go to work, go to school, minister to others, is how will your sins be dealt with? Because there are only two options of how sins get dealt with. Option one is, you deal with your sin yourself. That is an option to deal with your sin yourself. That is an option. The way you deal with your sin yourself is by going to hell and paying for your sin for all of eternity. In hell, the justice due to God for your sin is satisfied. In hell, the wrath of God will be poured out, and the wrath of God will be appeased. In hell, the anger of God that had been kindled because of our vile, wicked sin will be quenched. There will be weeping, there will be gnashing of teeth, and you will be there forever, and it is perfect justice for all of eternity. Since you have sinned against the eternal God. And in hell, God gets glory, and He gets justice that way. Option two is Christ. Drink your hell on the cross. Good Friday, what we remember today. At the cross, the justice due to God for your sin is satisfied. At the cross, the wrath of God is appeased. And at the cross, the anger of God that has been kindled because of your sin is quenched. At the cross, there is forgiveness for all who come in faith and repentance. At the cross, God gets His justice and Jesus Christ becomes a substitute on our behalf. At the cross, God is glorified. And at the cross, God the Father treated Jesus Christ as you should have been treated under the judgment bar of God, so that in return you are treated as if you lived that perfectly righteous life that Jesus Christ lived. And we can stand before God. If I stand before God as Tim in the flesh, depart from me. But if I stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. That is the good news. That is the gospel, and that is what we remember on Good Friday. And the story doesn't end there. Because Sunday, glory. Now, as we as we remember this Good Friday, as we remember the cross of Jesus Christ, Christ Himself gave us the church a symbol. To help us remember his sacrifice on the cross on our behalf. The night in which our Lord was betrayed, he gathered with his disciples on the Passover. He ate with them and he drank with them. During the supper he took bread and he took wine. The bread was to represent the body of Christ that was about to be broken. And the wine was to represent the blood of Christ which was about to be spilled out. The first Lord's Supper was about 2,000 years ago, and since then, the Christian church has been celebrating it ever since as a way to remember Christ's atoning death on the cross just as our Lord had commanded us. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it is an act of worship in remembrance of the atoning death of Christ, and that's what we will do now. So, as we take the Lord's Supper, it is only for those who put their faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, if you're a believer, join us, partake with us. If you are here and you're not a Christian, this is not for you to partake in, but it is for you to observe. And when you observe, you think about your eternal destiny. This is a perfect time for you that if you're not a Christian, to think. Think about how you will be made right before God, that you have no ability to justify yourself before a holy God. And I invite you this evening, come to Jesus if you do not know him. Come to Jesus this evening, repent and believe this good news of Christ's death on the cross on behalf of all who repent and believe that Jesus died for sinners and rose again. So now let's take a moment and let's examine ourselves before the Lord And prepare our hearts for a spiritual feast that Jesus died for sinners. As the men pass out the elements, I ask that you hold them and uh, we'll take them together. The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let's take the bread together, representing the body of Christ, which was broken for us. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup together, representing the blood of Christ, which was spilled for us. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's close in prayer. Father, it's a plan we could have never dreamed up, we could have never made up, we could have never thought of. It was your plan from the beginning to send Christ He was not plan B. He was plan A. He was always plan A. To come, to die on our behalf, to bear our sins, and to gift us his righteous life. And it is only for those who put their faith in that message that have eternal life. I pray for those in here who have put their faith in you. You would strengthen their faith. For those who haven't, they'd repent And turn to you and believe that message. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.